come. Good morning and welcome. It's good to be here and together today. Today we're starting a new series titled Christian. Christian. It's following on from the alongside. We're going to keep that as a theme that will run through for the rest of, of the year. But we're starting a new series, next four or five weeks, exploring this question, Christian. Some years ago, I was uh, preparing a couple for marriage and I didn't uh, know that they had any particular faith conviction or they weren't connected to any particular faith community. And they said, what we would like you to do is lead for us a Christian wedding. And I said, okay, uh, tell me, uh, what do you think Christian means? Um, I think that startled them a little bit because they thought me being the minister that I should know the answer to that question. And so uh, I asked them and they looked at each other and they shrugged their shoulders and they said, I don't know, I guess it just means being a good person, which I thought was a brilliant place to start. The only problem is what happens one day when when you're not a good person (laughs) or you have a bad day? Do you become un-Christian or non-Christian? How does it kind of work? I was talking to a young adult in the last few weeks and she said the brand Christian around my friends has something to do with Donald Trump and uh, it has something to do with people who hate people of an, a different form of sexuality. So that's the brand that I have people speak to me about when I hear the word Christian. So I thought post-Easter what we might do is take some time to explore the question, what constitutes being a Christian? Where does that even come from? And what were the convictions that those first followers of Jesus held that that, that enabled them to be called that designation Christian? Well, the trick, it seems to, um, if we have a little bit of a guess, it has something to do with the association with the name Jesus Christ. When I grew up, I thought Christ was like a surname, like Troy Arnott. And so it was um, like there was a, a Joseph Christ, there was a Mary Christ, there was a Jesus Christ, there was brothers and sisters Christ, just like John Smith, there was, there was Jesus Christ. Uh, what I didn't understand, though, is that when Jesus lived uh, on the earth, most of his life, most of his activity that's recorded, he was very clear to, to not use any kind of designation apart from most likely there was other references he used about his name but the most common sort of understanding of who he was is uh, where he came from who is in relationship to or what he did so he was often known as Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the son of Joseph or Jesus the carpenter or the carpenter's son and so curiously uh, this word Jesus Christ is more than just a surname. In fact, it's the Greek word that we have for Christ means Messiah in a Jewish context, which basically has to do with the anointing of a king. In the ancient world, when there was a new king in Jewish custom anointed, this, this idea of God's presence designating them out, they would pour oil on them, like on the, the, the priest's robes as well, the high priest. And so they would have this designation, this understanding that the word Christ has something to do with Messiah, which has got to do with an anointed king. And so what we discover is that Jesus Christ is not, Christ is not a surname, but rather it's a title means it says something about who Jesus is, Jesus the Christ, which is curious because when I play a, a sport or in the business world or often in workplace or work sites, I hear that name being used all the time, Jesus Christ. You might have heard it yourself. 
Sometimes if I hear it loud enough and I'm in kind of a curious mood and I just want to have fun with the person, um, I, I, I have on occasion said, do you believe that? <laughs> to which they look at me and they say, what are you talking about? I said, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, like a king, like an anointed one? They're like, what? Why don't we just hear it everywhere? In, in fact, those first followers of Jesus, what we discover is they weren't known as Christ followers. Rather, they were called the people of the way, which begged the question, which way? And so they were known as people of the Jesus way. In fact, what we discover is that it wasn't until later on after Jesus had died that those first followers of his were called Christians. And it was used, if you like, as a slur. The person we're going to look at today from the book of Acts, in fact, he's the author of Luke and the sequel, Acts, which has to do with the acts of the first followers of Jesus or the acts of God's spirit. Uh, the, the, the author is Luke and he's a doctor, he's a physician. And this is what he writes in his 11th chapter of the sequel to his account of Jesus titled Luke. So it says this, So for a while, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, two followers of Jesus, met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples, that word just means learners, were called Christians first at Antioch in that cosmopolitan city now located in southern Turkey. They were called Christians. When the outsiders were looking in at people who were saying that they were following the way of Jesus, a word that they came up with when they were starting to try and give them a designation, they thought, Did you, you follow this person, you call Jesus Christ, so we're going to call you, you, you Christians. And so it stuck. And so since that time if you like, the designation of Christian has become part of the understanding of who a Jesus follower is. So the question I want to explore in the next four or five weeks, and particularly today, is how is it that Jesus, known as Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter's son, became Jesus the Christ? If I pressed it a little bit deeper, I'd say, if we just look at some stats here, there's a sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity and he just crunched the numbers. So let me put it to you in another way. In AD 1, there was known about 120 Christians or followers of Jesus, but yet by the AD 350, when Constantine seems to have had a conversion experience himself, the Roman emperor, it said that 33 million people identified themselves as Christians. That is just over half of the entire Roman world. Or to press it and nudge it along a little bit more, in 2021, how is it that 2.4 billion people on this planet, approximately a third or just a little over, identify themselves as being Christians? How is it that Jesus of Nazareth became Jesus the Christ? That's what we want to explore over the next few weeks. And what I want to share with you today is two rock-solid convictions that those first Christians held about Jesus that seemed to cause them to become a mighty force to be reckoned with. So if you're listening at home or you're here this morning and you haven't explored that whole idea and you're checking Jesus out, this is a perfect morning for you to be here so to really begin the story, we need to go back a whole two weeks to Easter Sunday. Do you remember that? Two weeks ago to Easter Sunday. And there we get Luke, one of the followers of Jesus, the physician. He begins to write 
in his account about what happened on that first Sunday, that first day of the week. And he writes this in his 24th chapter. While they were still talking about this, what's this? Well, the events that had taken place in Jerusalem just that day and over the last two or three days. What Luke describes is a conversation that uh, a person by the name of Cleopas and a friend has along the way as they walk to a little town called Emmaus, just a few miles, several miles from Jerusalem. And on that journey, they meet another way traveller. And they don't realise and recognise that it's none other than Jesus himself. There's something about his appearance that they don't quite get. It says, by the time till they get to their travel lodging, they invite this wayfarer to come and join with them. And when that person breaks bread over a meal, it says that in that moment, those two that were there, Cleopas and another person, they see this person, Jesus, for who he is. There's something about him that makes an appearance that differentiates and they discover and they see him as he is. And then he vanishes from their eyes. Well, so excited, they run back to tell the rest of the disciples because that morning the women had gone to the tomb and they hadn't found a body. The disciples had run to the tomb. They hadn't found a body. In fact, no one was expecting a body to rise. No one was expecting Jesus to turn up, which can kind of be a little bit like our Sunday morning gatherings, can't it? People arrive and they don't expect Jesus to turn up. I'm praying today that Jesus will turn up in a really whole good way, maybe surprise us. They weren't expecting that, but that's the news that they came back with. And in that very moment, Luke says, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they had seen or they were seeing a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your hands, in your minds? He says, look at my hands getting ahead and my feet. There's something about the resurrected Jesus that still has the hallmarks, the nail marks, the wounds of the crucifixion. So he shows them to him. He says, it is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, it's not like they didn't believe, but they were just so overcome with amazement and shock. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? I love that bit. Jesus gets hungry. <laughs> so they give him a bit of broiled fish, it says, and he eats it in their presence. And so we discover something about what Jesus' body is like. It seems to have earthly dimensions that can eat broiled fish and disappear from people's sight. That's why they call it in the Bible a glorified body. What does that mean? It's got heavenly dimensions and it's got earthly dimensions and it can mix both together. And so Jesus, it says, eats the broiled fish and in that moment there, there's this understanding, there's this revelation, there's this eyewitness account that none other than this Jesus person has come back to life in some kind of bodily form. A number of years ago, I'd been recommended to go to a doctor in eastern Melbourne and so I went to his practice in the eastern suburbs and we began to strike up a conversation I quickly discovered that he was a theosophist and I won't go into all the things that theosophists believe apart from one of the convictions is that they are God. So as we're sitting there in his medical practice, he picked up a pen and he held it in front of me and he said, Troy, I want you to know that this is God. 
He said, what's more, my name means God, and so I am God as well. I thought to myself, hmm, that's interesting. If you're God, then you should be able to do things that I can't. So I said, okay, I reckon if you were God, then you would be able to have all authority to even come back to life again. He said, well, I have been dead twice, which kind of made me a little bit more curious. So I said to him, well, if you're that good, then tell me how much money do I have in my bank account? To which he replied, oh, I'm not that good. (laughs) But Jesus was. There was a time in which he was expected to pay a tax from the toll booth and he didn't have the money on him at the time. And so he just simply turned to Peter and said, why don't you go fishing for a moment? If you go fishing, the first fish you catch, just haul it in, reach down to its throat, you pull out a coin and with that denarius you can pay pay the toll booth tax. Jesus did know how much money was in the bank account. You see, the first thing that Jesus' followers believed rock-solid, ground-earth, foundational building was that Jesus was alive. And that they put the kind of the math together, the two and the two. They concluded that, wait a second, if Jesus has come back to life, then he has all authority in the cosmos over the greatest evil that has permeated into God's good world and his creation, and that is decay and death itself. And if this person, Jesus, has come back to life, then he is who he whispered and claimed he would be, that he is Israel's Messiah and Christ, but he is also, by virtue of that, the world's true Lord and King. That is, he has rights over everything. Which kind of was inconvenient for the people who followed Jesus Christ because it meant it put them on a collision course with Rome. You see, as soon as you declare that you're following someone who is the true and rightful king of the world, then in a world where Caesar was king, that became a little treasonous. That was lived out in a most profound way in AD 64 when Nero, who was becoming increasingly mad and disjointed in himself happened to be part of, the story goes, seeing and observing the burning of Rome. For seven days, Rome burnt. Two-thirds of the, if you like, the housing had, had been destroyed and a third or a half of the population was homeless by the seventh day. And a rumour had gone out around the Roman world, around Rome itself, that Caesar had wanted to extend his lavish palatine, his, his palace sort of space, and so he had acquired some extra land. So Nero, wanting to shift blame, appeals to a group of people who are called Christian and lays the blame on them. A Roman crowd wanting to have their anger appeased, For the next weeks and months, he began a circus where he found Christians, killed them, put them on posts, rolled them in tar, lit them at night time to be the light of the way that would lead to the circus where he would cover men, women and children with animal skins and set wild animals on them for the appeasement of the Roman people because they were called Christians. But that's not only half the story. You see, that 
might explain why the designation of Jesus of Nazareth had become Jesus the Christ because he had risen and he was the world's true Lord and King. But that wouldn't explain how it was that there was such a ripple effect throughout the Roman world where people could say that God had been transforming and changing the human heart. What accounts for that? Well, the story goes on. Luke says this, of Jesus from the book of Acts in chapter 1, his sequel. He writes to them and he continues the story, if you like, of Jesus post-resurrection. Jesus said these words to his disciples, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my, that my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? It's God's Spirit. What is that Spirit? It's the Spirit of God that enters into and becomes part of someone's life who receives and follows Jesus. You see, part of the story of Israel had been that God had given them commandments and they had failed and failed and failed to live them. You know what that's like. You might have some commandments of your own. You make your own rules. You try and live by them. Do you always live by them? That was the story of Israel, that they had continually failed. And so the, the early or the, the prophets, the followers of Jesus pre, sorry, of God pre-Jesus time had concluded this, that the reason why humans find it so hard to follow God is that there's something faulty with their insides. There's something faulty with their heart. It seems to be inclined towards self-interest and wanting to do things their way, to resist God's ways. And so they concluded, the prophet said, that there needs to be someone or something that will come that will transform the human heart from the inside out. And so they began to talk about the Spirit. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit. And so, if you like, Jesus said, what I want you to do is wait for the gift that has been spoken of, my spirit to come and enter into people's lives. And so they did. And they waited. And it says at the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after this time, the time in which, if you like, was the spring harvest festival, when the rural farmers would bring in their wheat as a celebration and a thanksgiving in God's temple, they'd break the barley count 50 days, and on the day of Pentecost they would bring all of their first fruits as a thank offering to God. This is what happened. In the midst of all of that sort of entourage coming from all parts of the world, Jewish people wanting to give thanks to God in that festival, it says that God's Spirit fell upon the followers of Jesus. It says in that moment they began to speak in languages that they had not learnt for themselves. But other Jewish people that were in part of the, the other parts of the known world could hear in, in their new tongue, describing and saying something about God. Some people looked at this event that was going on and they just concluded, well, I tell you what, they've just had too much to drink. <laughs> 
But Peter stands up amongst them and he goes, no, 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 we're not drunk. This is something that the prophet Joel had spoken about that in the end times what would happen is that God would pour out his spirit on young people and old. It wouldn't be designated just for one individual person but it would be poured out on humankind so that everyone would have their hearts fixed from the inside out so that they would want to want what God wants. And so in the midst of that conversation... Luke writes this about what Paul says, Peter says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, like we just learnt, both Lord and Messiah, the King and the Boss and the CEO and the President of the world. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? (laughs) Peter's message was really simple. He said this, You killed him, God raised him, you're in big trouble. It went like this. You killed him, God raised him, you're in big trouble. (laughs) So they said, what shall we do? And his reply was this. Turn back. The word is repent. Do an about face. Do a U-turn. Change the direction of your life. Change what you believe about who Jesus is. And be baptised every single one of you next week, people getting baptised under the water. But this isn't quite what he was talking about in its full context. He said, in the name of Jesus the Messiah, so that your sins can be forgiven and you will receive another baptism. If you like, you'll be filled with God's Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for everyone who is far away, as many as the Lord our God will call. You see, there was another solid conviction, if you like, from those first early followers of Jesus that, if you like, in their minds had turned Jesus from the Nazarene, the carpenter, Joseph's son, into Jesus the Christ. It was because they believed that Jesus was alive, but he was also alive by his spirit in them. You see, when God's spirit comes into someone's life, It breathes fresh life into them. I remember many years ago waking up in the middle of the night, gibbering away in some sort of language I hadn't learned before. I turned to Bron and I said, what's going on? She said, I don't know. (laughs) But from that moment on, I discovered that there was this other kind of spirit language that had been opened up for me. It wasn't as though I was someone in particularly special, but I just believed that God was preparing me to plant a church called New Community and he was giving me new fresh tools and new fresh understanding and new fresh insight that would empower me for that. So it was a spirit kind of language that I've been able to draw upon over the years and utilise. But before that time, there was another encounter I had with God's spirit when I was about 19 or 20 years old was wrestling in my heart about who should I follow, what should I believe, where do I fit. And I felt God's spirit, if you like, fill my heart up with a sense of liquid love. I couldn't quite explain it. It's not as though I went hugging every tree that I saw or tearing up every time I saw a romantic movie. It was more than that. It was this sense of warm love for people and for God. I've heard people explain it like this, you know, when I became a Jesus follower and he sent his spirit into my life, what happened to me was that I began to become more patient. (laughs) They said it changed my habits when I went shopping. (laughs) 
I started to allow other people in front of me. You know those annoying people that you just want to get through the register and the, yeah, come in front of me, come in front of me, come in front of me. That makes sense because it talks about the fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I heard someone else explain, they said, when I became a Jesus follower and the Spirit of God started to work in my heart and my mind, people I would usually walk past on the streets and say, they're probably there because of their own fault. I began to check myself and sometimes pull alongside, be less judgmental, offer a meal, have a conversation, treat them as a human being made in the image of God. Why? Because God's Spirit had begun to work in me. We're going to have the musos come up. But I wonder if you came here this morning and you weren't expecting Jesus, but he's here. I wonder if you came carrying those convictions that Jesus is alive and he's alive in me. Or I wonder how he might become alive in me those two rock solid bed foundational convictions those early followers of Jesus had that turned them into being ordinary people into Christians was because they changed their understanding this man they followed wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth a carpenter he was none other than the Christ the anointed one the king who'd come for them and was available for all who call upon his name. So one of you here this morning and it's been a long time since you felt the freshness of God's life and spirit in your life. My prayer before we began this morning, the three words, three phrases, God, would you fall afresh? God, would you fall afresh? God, would you fall afresh? On people. How? I think it begins when people adopt a posture, human beings made in his image. Sometimes that's why I think gestures work. Open up your hands as a representation of opening up your heart and mind to God and you say, God, would you fall fresh on me today? Your servant. Well, maybe you're here and you have never decided to open up your life to Jesus. How do I do that? I say it's like giving God the keys of your car and saying, I've had enough of driving. How about you take a turn? You hand the keys of your life to him and he says, good, finally, thank you, appreciate that. Now just get in the passenger seat. Let me drive for a while. And I wonder in the quiet now, the most appropriate thing to do 
you're hearing him, that you might declare, Jesus, I believe that you are alive. Would you come alive, please, in me? So before we sing, I'd invite you to. You might want to posture your hands. Open your heart. Close your eyes. God, would you fall afresh? Holy Spirit, would you fall afresh? Fresh life. New energy. New conviction. Fresh love. Jesus, would you come into my life? Let's stand together.